Oh, time! Thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard a knot for me to untie. So says Viola in this couplet at the end of what's an often entertaining monologue in Twelfth Night, one of the Bard's most beloved comedies. We'll be talking about this complicated and tricky, but for the audience, often comedic situation Viola gets herself tangled up in. Welcome to Shakespeare's Shadows, the podcast that explores a single Shakespeare character in each episode, bringing together perspectives from both the theater and the classroom via interviews with both actors and academics. In this episode, we'll be talking all about Twelfth Night's Viola. Twelfth Night is a play packed with hilarity, with wacky and silly characters, but it's also a play with some darkness right next to the light. Viola is mourning the death of her twin brother, Sebastian, whom we are told has just been lost at sea. Viola spends the bulk of Twelfth Night dressed as a young man, taking on the name Cesario. It's one of what's known as Shakespeare's pants rolls. Viola's disguise propels much of the play's comedy, and it's also what really opens up the world for Viola. She can interact with people in ways as a man that she wouldn't be able to as a woman. Last summer, I was fortunate enough to get to see Twelfth Night at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. The impressive thing about that production is that one actress played both Viola and Sebastian. The role of Viola already calls upon an actor to create some nuanced differences in the physicality of Viola and Viola disguised as Cesario. But this production gave its lead the additional task of crafting a Sebastian who's distinct from, but also in some ways similar to his twin sister. The actress who really blew me away taking on that challenge, Sarah Bruner, joined us for this episode to chat Viola and her Sebastian a little bit too. Someone else who also saw that Oregon Shakespeare Festival production of Twelfth Night is the other actor guest on this episode. Lisa Volpe, the founder of the Los Angeles Women's Shakespeare Company. She is a pioneer in gender-bent Shakespeare, having directed and performed in all-female productions of the Bard's plays all around the world. So that's who you heard at the very beginning of this episode reciting Viola's couplet. Here is Lisa Volpe again, talking about Sarah Bruner's performance last year as both Viola and Sebastian. To be able to see, you know, Sarah Bruner work for two hours on her skills and shadings of gesture cultivation, you know, gendered, you know, according to scene. I think that's pretty, pretty advanced work and takes great actress. And Sarah was well aware that Lisa Volpe was seeing her show. Lisa told me that she got to see your 12th night last summer, uh, or last year as well. Oh, believe me, I remember. (laughs) I was so nervous that she was there. I um, admired her for years from a distance. And then when I started working at OSF, I finally had... um, a chance to meet her and see her work and stuff, and she's she's amazing. I was rather delighted to discover during these phone interviews that these two actresses are familiar with each other's work, though not at all surprised, really. At this point, I'll give you a quick review of the story of Twelfth Night. Like with King Lear, whom we discussed in the previous episode, we have a play here with wonderful supporting characters, ones I'd like to delve into more in future episodes. But for our spotlight on Viola, I'll just focus here mostly on what's going on with Viola in this play. Should go without saying, but 
400-year-old spoilers coming up here. Viola, a gentlewoman, washes up on the coast of Illyria and realizes her twin brother, Sebastian, most likely died in the shipwreck. Trying to figure out how she's going to make do here, Viola learns about two rich people in Illyria who are most likely in the position to employ her, the Countess Olivia and the Duke Orsino. She decides to work for Orsino, but the Duke's a dude and doesn't need any ladies-in-waiting, so that means Viola's going to do some cross-dressing. Disguised as a boy and taking on the name Cesario, Viola's first big task for Orsino is to go woo a woman for Orsino's sake. She's supposed to get Olivia to agree to marry Orsino. But Olivia falls instantly for this Cesario. Sticky situation for Viola, made all the more complicated by the fact that Viola is falling for Orsino, her boss who thinks she's a boy. Quite the messy love triangle. Well, after a good deal of shenanigans and confusion and a bit of ridiculous sword fighting... Olivia winds up marrying Sebastian, who, yes, is actually alive. Yay! And Orsino proposes to Viola, like, right after finding out that she is, in fact, a woman. But why does Viola disguise herself as a boy in the first place? Well, if you think about it too hard, it doesn't entirely make sense. But we'll hear two takes on that. First, from University of Southern California professor Carla Delegata, who contributed her expertise and research background on both theater critical studies and gender studies to this episode. And then we'll hear from Lisa Volpe. Well, I think it it is a bit strange because she's familiar with, she knows through her father the, the prominent people in town. So there's not as much of a reason for her disguise, but the consequences for her disguise are what drive the entire play. And, and when she gets dressed up in that way, even though the gender the gender switching seems to be problematic. It's actually when people try to move up and down in class that proves that leads them to a disastrous end. Mm-hmm. Her gender play winds up turning out great for her, mm-hmm. and um, but when people try to jump classes, that's what we see with Malvolio and and a number of other characters. It doesn't go well. Well, probably she's traveling someplace where there's rape culture, and if she doesn't mm-hmm. disguise herself, someone will take advantage of her because mm-hmm. she doesn't have a male protector. That's what I would say, given the time in which the play was written, you know, there were a lot of travelers attacked on the King's Highway and women did not travel alone. Mostly they would travel in disguise as a man because then they would have less attention drawn to them. So that is where I would justify the costume switch. Mm-hmm. Did you did you direct it before you'd ever played the part or did you get to play Violet <clears throat> first? I played it first. Uh, not in the full production, but I, I explored the role deeply in classwork and in college. And um, I think Viola was the first um, scene that I worked on in depth at Shakespeare and Company when I was 19 years old. I spent a month on that scene. I played it in the year 2000 in a production I also directed that was all female. It was a Balinese-inspired production at the John Anson Ford Amphitheater. Is there anything you personally learned about Viola or that, you know, any new light you saw her in once you played her um, in a professional production for the first time that wasn't anything that wasn't part of your conception of who she is before then? Well, I think because I was directing it, I was struck by how hopeful 
Viola is in comparison to Sebastian, mm. who's very fatalistic and, you know, won't won't even go look for her for three months and lies about who he is. And he just has a more confusing background, hanging out with pirates and pretending he's someone he's not. Um, and she is also duplicitous in that same way of pretending that she's something she's not. But she's very, very hope-filled and uplifting. There's a lot of levity in her demeanor and in her language. So that's what my takeaway was. She was a real joy to embody. Sarah Bruner has also encountered Viola at more than one point in her career. She played the character twice before last year's production in Ashland, Oregon. Those first two Violas of hers were at the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. Now she's a company member at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and when OSF Artistic Director Bill Rausch announced that their 2016 season would include a 12th night with one actor playing both Viola and Sebastian, she put the role, well, roles on her wish list. I put it on this thing that's literally called my wish list and mm. expressed to Bill that I was interested. I never spoke with the director about it at all. I just sort of threw my hat in the ring. And, um, and then I ended up uh, being cast... I don't think I would have expressed as much interest in it if it was just Viola because I've done Viola a couple of other times, but I was really interested in the idea of doing both. Sarah talked to me about her approach to the specific differences in physicality and mannerisms between her Sebastian and her Viola and her Viola as Cesario. You know, I wanted the differences between them to be subtle. And so I built subtle differences so that just for myself before I went on stage, I would, you know, if my I'd put my hand in my pocket and that meant that I was um, Sebastian or I would undo my top couple of buttons and loosen my tie and that meant that I was Sebastian. I would lean more into one hip and that meant I was Sebastian. And a lot of this, a lot of this was based off of my observation that um, a lot of the time, and I don't mean this across the board, but often men operate more confidently physically in the world. They're allowed to take up a little bit more space in the world. They're allowed to have a little bit more swagger. They're allowed to settle in their body slightly differently. Um, and I can see that physically manifest uh, as a difference between men and women that I perceive. So like your, I, your Viola as Cesario, uh, like I remember she, you'd have your hands in your jacket pockets a lot. Uh, totally. And that taking was up way- less space, kind of arms, elbows in. Yeah. And, and Sebastian would always be splayed and, and Viola would, Viola slash Cesario would be the zipped up version with a, just a, a little bit more tension in my body. And it's one of the interesting things about having one person play both is because so often when you watch the play, you're like, uh, uh why is, why is Olivia such an idiot like obviously that's a girl or why is so-and-so such an idiot obviously that's a boy and obviously so those, that's not the same person yeah you know, once you see how different violence Sebastian. yeah totally totally so um also you know thinking of these two people growing up as twins I wanted to think about what their similarities were as well and not just their differences and take advantage of the fact that it really is just me doing it and um just sort of that exercise of, well, they can also be the same in some ways. Or there are some ways that I truly can't just change myself. And I have to, I have to accept that, that like vocally, you know, I have a higher pitched 
voice. I have sort of a young sounding voice. And if I try to lower it, I'm just going to sound like I'm trying to do a man voice. So I didn't have all of the kind of range that I wish that I had in that aspect of performance. So I slightly would change speech patterns between the two of them, mm. but my voice was basically pitched the same way. So I tried to make it a combination of similarities and and differences at the same time, I guess. If you know how Twelfth Night goes, you're probably wondering, how did Sarah Bruner pull off the reunion moment? When Viola and Sebastian are reunited in Act 5, it's typically two actors who come face to face. This OSF production was set in 1930s Hollywood, and for the reunion moment, a big screen is lowered to the stage. Footage on this screen displays Sebastian, and Viola steps behind the screen, and then she too is on screen in flickering black and white. A modern movie-making trick appearing in the style of a 1930s film projected that moment with two Sarah Bruners. That was filmed so early in the rehearsal process. I mean, a couple of weeks in it was filmed. Mm -hmm. So suddenly I was in a position of shooting the last scene of the show, not even having built most of the play. So some of that, what you're observing, like um, my hands in my jacket pocket, was born on that day because mm. I thought, well, I just have to decide something for right now. It evolved. Both characters evolved really far, I think, beyond what that final screen image was. But I had to build that screen image really early, so it ended up being the first kind of piece. Yeah, I thought, I mean, that reunion moment with the screen, you know, totally worked for that 1930s Hollywood setting. Um, yeah. I mean, a little production magic that maybe took you out of the moment a little bit, but totally. I mean, so worth it for seeing you play both roles. Well, yeah. And I think that no matter what, I mean, it's every decision like that, of course, it, I think that there is a loss that comes with it. Early on, when I heard the idea at first, I thought, oh, one of my favorite things about playing Viola the other two times I did it was that reunion scene. It's kind of like, the gold medal scene that you get to have at the end of the show. It's such a beautifully written scene. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing to get to play it, you know, with your brother and have whatever that the magic is of seeing each other. And um, that discovery is so fun. And the one thing that happened that was really kind of complicated and strange is that I filmed that scene once one day, weeks before I opened, and then the show ran for 120 performances, but that scene always stayed the same. Mm, yeah. And I never got to play that scene again. So I never got to experience the arc in the same way as Viola because I never actually got to go through the entire show, which was weird. And you rely on scenes as an actor because you try to make them all make sense as a series of events, and then they all add up, and then they all become dependent upon one another. Um, and it's hard, especially when you lose one like that. So that was a unique experience with some modern technology that Sarah had with a 2016 production of Twelfth Night. Let's now take a look at how the play would have been performed when it was first staged in London, at a time when women were not permitted to act. Professor Carla Delegata fills us in on some historical background. Well, Twelfth Night was written in 1601 and probably first performed in 1602, and it, it's right situated in there as when, pretty much Shakespeare's last legitimate comedy. He'll also write Measure for Measure after that, which he considered a comedy, but today we would consider it a little bit more problematic and not as funny. 
So it's right there, right, right between Hamlet and Othello. And Viola has that line, I am not, I am not who I am, which Iago will pick up and have the exact same one in, in the play um, the following year. So where it falls in the canon, it's when Queen Elizabeth I is, is sick and she'll die in 1603, and we have a woman in a man's role who's taken power, and that's kind of being played out on stage here. The apprentices, the male apprentices, would have played the female role, and there's thought to have been a highly musical singing boy who would have played Desdemona and who could have played Ophelia as well. And here in this play, Viola promises that she's going to sing a song, and then she doesn't. So if that boy perhaps grew up and, and became um, part of the company, or whether or not, we're not sure if um, had this role because Viola doesn't sing, although the play is littered with music, and music could be pretty much in any scene in the play, but it's mm -hmm. incredibly prominent. But Viola would have been played by a boy apprentice in the company. The, the the limitation is that the plays themselves aren't really written for that big of a spectrum of experience. Um, because they were based mostly on master and apprentice, the older actor who was a man and the younger actor who was a boy would have you know different size roles because the older actor would be more skilled. So he would play Othello. And then the boy would play Desdemona who had fewer lines. So the boy who played Viola must have been particularly good. Yeah. because a lot was written for that kid. And there must have been a couple of them because they they had Sebastian to write for as well. Do you know what I mean? It must have been those two young men were so, so great. And one was really great at being feminine or, you know, could do that whole Cesario spread. You heard at the start of this episode the conclusion of Viola's soliloquy that begins, I left no ring with her. After Viola's encounter with Olivia, the Countess sends her steward Malvolio after Cesario, well, Viola, and hands over this ring. Malvolio says he's returning the ring that Cesario left with Olivia, and he also tells Cesario to pass on the message to Orsino that Olivia's so not into him. Well, Viola didn't give any ring to Olivia. Aha, it dawns on her. This Countess lady has got a thing for me, but not me, it's this boy Cesario I'm disguised as. Once Malvolia's left, Viola, alone on stage, unloads on the audience this hilarious conundrum she's now got to deal with. In a modern text like a pelican or a riverside, they'd probably turn that into two sentences. I left no ring with her, you know, exclamation point, hands on my little hips. What means this lady? Question mark. But in the original, it's just a long developed question. I left no ring with her. What means this lady? Mm. So... It's actually kind of more intelligent in the original punctuation, longer sentences, uh, complex mind. I think it's a really great monologue because you're working out, you know, is, is this disguise a wickedness? What is it to deceive women? And how easy it is to deceive a woman. Oh, my God, we should look at that. And then to say, it's not our fault. This is what we're made of. We're just softies. When I directed in a college and the kid playing Viola is a little softy, you know, they're 17 years old. It's the first play they've ever really done. It feels really easy to see how how much of a softy little Viola could be. You can read it as a director and say, oh, I want it to be a feminist Shakespeare. But a kid that age is all over the place. And if you add shipwreck and loss of your father and your brother and any kind of support system and getting all tangled up in a big lie with all these passionate people. Um, and people kind of see her. I think Festy sees her really clearly. So 
I don't think she feels safe. I feel like she's always on the edge of being found out. Looking back at this line, uh, poor lady, she were better love a dream. Um, I want to take a closer look at that poor lady uh, part. Uh, I mean, it seems that Violet has some sympathy for mm-hmm. Olivia. Um, and it makes the sense that she would be sympathetic toward her, I suppose, because, you know, they're both mourning their brothers. You know, mm-hmm. at least Violet thinks she's mourning her dead brother. So how does that impact uh, the relationship between these two women, um, the fact that they're both mourning brothers, not that you know, Olivia necessarily knows that. Right. But. Well, I think that it, it becomes apparent in their first meeting that they have a lot in common. Yes, they're they're in mourning, and the the fathers have also died, but you know, but they're mourning brothers. But they're of the same station or close to it, and um, you know, because Viola is a gentlewoman, but. Also, they, they match each other in wit and, and affect and humor. They both can spar with the fool. And I think that they have a good deal in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, she would feel for her. And, and imagine being in love with someone whom you can't have, which in that moment is Viola's exact situation. She has her feelings for Sino. Poor lady. She would better love a dream. She's trapped in these male clothes. What did she do? And so... Maybe some of that can be interpreted as self-reflexive and, and saying, I, I'm in the same situation. And both of those are Viola's fault. She's the one who did it to, <laughs> to both people. And so, so that's the, and not being able to reveal anything. I think that the compassion toward Olivia is one of the most important things in that relationship and as much as you can be driven crazy by Olivia because she's coming after you or tries to kiss you or this, that, or the other, um, the degree of compassion, I think that Viola is the only person who could have walked in that room and started to crack Olivia's heart open. Mm. And it's because Olivia felt feels understood by her in a really deep way that she's not able to articulate, but they know each other, you know, they meet each other and they just instantly know each other on a different level. Though we know Viola is dealing with the apparent death of her twin brother, she is a rather chipper character much of the play. So an actor playing Viola has the challenge of embodying that lightheartedness without losing sight of the fact that she is mourning Sebastian. Her brother figures into every scene for her, which I think is one of the hard things of doing it. And I don't think that when I have ever done it, I've been able to do that successfully, like really carry that. It's a difficult, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard, but that acting task of, I've just arrived on this island and I think my brother is dead. And so I'm going to dress like my brother Mm -hmm. and go through this play, but my brother is dead. My brother is dead. And the language doesn't actually help at all. She doesn't, she never directly talks about him. I think that by wearing her brother's uniform, she's keeping him alive in a certain way. It's a conscious effort to to walk in the world as him and keep him vibrationally present. And that's what I did when I walked around as him because I knew I looked just like him. I combed my hair a certain way. And to set my shoulders that way and to flirt with women the way he did. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I always watch my brother flirt. I, <laughs> I just totally know his, his mood. Um, so I, I think that's mimicry is a very high form of adulation. So pretending to be your brother so much so that when your brother shows up, <laughs> you have totally affected a doppelganger. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's playable. 
One of the beautiful things about Twelfth Night is that it expresses both utter joy and utter despair. It's about love and death. Death and love. Let's get into the love part of that now and talk about the blossoming romance between Viola and Orsino. Orsino and Viola have a long scene with Festi, and it kind of goes through a number of different parts. and. And that's where there's this intimate conversation about love and 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 Viola had a sister who was in love with a man and so forth and and they they share that time together as men in the homosocial world as part of the court that wouldn't have been possible if Viola were presented as Viola rather than Cesario. So some of it is the way that courtship and and marriage were, how is it that men and women are supposed to meet? So I think that it makes it makes more sense that, that Orsino would fall in love with someone he actually knows rather than someone who he can't even get to Olivia. Um, he can't even get to a woman he's trying to court. And so he has all this great alone time <laughs> with Viola. And, and I think it, it makes a good deal of sense. So there's that closeness, that intimacy that Orsino right. and Viola Cesario get to have that, you know, a man and woman courting otherwise wouldn't have right. had. Yes, they get to be in close physical proximity and and bond with each other in the way that courtship typically is not staged at this time. Orsino sits with a boy and listens to soulful music and they basically fall in love by listening to music as men. The way the play is constructed, Come Away Death is the big romantic scene. Um, yeah, and I think they have a lot of um, blushing, hormonal, rushing, gushing, first love Itis, you know, they fall hard for who they fall for. Do you know what I mean? It's that yeah. moment in your life when you fall really hard for someone. Just can't breathe, basically. And I think if you can get that between Orsino and, and Cesario, and to tell the truth, it's so well written, almost anybody does get it. You know, just sitting mm-hmm. in that scene, having the rhythm of that particular experience that they that they have written for them. And it's funny, too, because um, as they fall in love, we fall in love with them. It's just adorable. I'm trying to pretend that they're not falling in love. In that Oregon Shakespeare Festival Twelfth Night set in 1930s Hollywood, company member Elijah Alexander played his Orsino as a German auteur filmmaker. One of the great things about having Orsino be this sort of auteur director is that it instantly lines up with all of that passion, the, the passionate Orsino that we know of, the, yeah. the Orsino who is starting the play with If Music Be the Food of Love play on, right? Like the kind of guy that's lounging on a chaise, listening to music, yeah. saying, no, that part again, it's breaking my heart, I need it, you know? And um, I think that to have this sort of wild German director in in that slot. The two are, you know, it was a pretty good marriage of the DNA of kind of who Orsino is. Is there anything in particular that stands out to you from rehearsals for that scene with Elijah Alexander um, and from performing uh, Act 2, Scene 4 at OSEF, um, when it's the two of them listening to music and Orsino's giving Cesario advice about women, about love? That was one of those that I do actually really remember rehearsing it because I loved working on it so much. And um, it's such a delicate scene and I always loved it the most in the rehearsal hall, which I'm not the only person who you'll ever meet who will say that about certain scenes, you know, like sometimes there's just this magic you can conjure up in the hall and then um, 
transferring it can be difficult or making what's private public can mm. be difficult. Um, but I was always profoundly moved by that scene and especially with Elijah because it's like two people sitting in the same room with broken hearts and not realizing that, that they could mend each other's hearts and not having the ability to actually take action and do anything about it, but to be sitting there, you know, in the same boat, sort of side by side. Um, but then, of course, out of that explodes this complicated conversation about men and women and love. And it's a very Shakespearean conversation, too, that we hear in a lot of the plays about, well, men love this way and women love this way. Mm-hmm. And Viola sort of gets an opportunity to stand up for all of womanhood and, you know, call call it as she sees it, uh, which is a really empowering, but also at the same time, I think, sad thing for her because... Um, I don't think that she gets off in in that scene without a deeper self-awareness that may feel a little bit uncomfortable as well. In this part, when the two of them are just chatting alone together, Act 2, Scene 4, as Sarah discussed, Viola stands up for women's ability to love deeply when Orsino claims that women don't love as strongly as men. But she doesn't have the same kind of thoughtful retort for a claim Orsino makes earlier in the scene. After Viola as Cesario coyly tells Orsino that the person she's got a crush on is about your years, my lord, Orsino, who we can see is older than this boy page, says, Let thy love be younger than thyself, or thy affection cannot hold the bent. For women are as roses, whose fair flower, once being displayed, doth fall that very hour. You know, Orsino is telling Viola, well, Cesario, a couple things here. Um, Orsino advises that, you know, Cesario shouldn't marry older women because women are like roses and they age quickly and then lose their beauty. So there's that. Yeah, I know exactly the, you know, groan response (laughs) that everyone is probably giving that scene. So there's that. And then what he says about women not, being capable as loving as strongly as men, as you mentioned. And Viola, her response to each of those is different. So tell me how uh, you kind of decided to approach the performance of each of those responses. I mean, I can, I can see it in the way that that line is written. And so they are, alas, that they are so, you know, it, 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 to me, that's always felt a little like, Unfortunately, some people do believe that, that, you know, this thing with age and women and all of that. But I can't play a Viola who is like, oh, yes, that's absolutely true. You know, I can't. I can't play that Viola. I can't stand on stage and say that. So I use that language to sort of respond in a way that is, um, at least in my mind, God knows how any of these things ever come across. But (laughs) that... um, it's a tiny moment, but it is right. so, it's so dense. To me, that moment is, yes, it's true that people believe that. I don't believe that. And we all know it's not actually true, but I can't deal with it right now. <laughs> you know, she doesn't, she doesn't deal with that one head on. Alas, that they are so. Uh, that, to me, that doesn't sound like someone, especially to say alas, that they are so, doesn't sound to me 
like the same kind of language that she's using in the rest of the scene mm. when she's sparring with him on this topic. It's like she could say it mockingly. Yeah. Um, or I've seen it done where it's there's some sadness in that line. Like she is fearful that she will uh, yeah. lose her beauty. But I, I honestly can't remember now how... I have done it in the past, but it can be, you know, it is both of those things and, and more than one thing also, but it's hard, man, it's hard on the ears, isn't it? It's like one of those lines that's just like, oh, it sounds so sexist. Moving on to another moment in Twelfth Night that is often difficult for modern audiences and actors to grapple with. Viola's silence in Act 5. The last time we hear from her is when she's responding to Orsino's marriage proposal and his command that she change into women's clothing. She's still on stage, but she doesn't say anything again for the final 140 lines or so of the play. Viola gets what she wants. Her brother's alive and met a wonderful woman and is married, and she met a really wonderful man and is married, but we don't hear, we don't hear that from her. We, you want to hear a word from her or something, um, and we, don't, we just don't get that. It drives me crazy every single time. Um, all you can do is try. I mean, there is nothing you can do about it, and you don't have any lines. And it happens in Shakespeare's fifth acts to women pretty consistently. And you're like, I've been doing, I've been carrying this whole show, and we get to the last scene, and now I'm just sort of in the background. You know, it's really insane. The way that they they get quiet, I don't feel like I've ever dealt with it well because I usually end up just feeling like um, a bit of a spectator to the play. And it's very strange when you, you've had so much invested in it to have the playwright sort of, literally it feels like he's just sort of setting you aside. And often in the blocking, you'll notice like you literally do end up to the side because the main action is elsewhere. You know, there's nothing you can do because if you rage against it too much, then you're not doing the play anymore. And um, like, what can you? What can one do in a Shakespeare play without language? Especially at that point, you know, you just have to go with it. But it's not, it's not comfortable. You know, the long list of questions I wish I could ask Shakespeare. Why did you do this or what was going on there? I always wonder with that one, too. Like, I would want to ask him, do you realize that you keep on doing this, Shakespeare? Do you know you keep doing this to your women? Because I don't think that he would intentionally want to do that to his women. For those, you know, silent remainders of Act 5, what kind of conversations have you had with your directors each of the time you, the times you played Viola? Did they have any specific thoughts or advice about how to contend with the rest of that act. No, you know, I don't know that I've ever talked directly with my directors about that because mm. what happens is that just the nuts and bolts of that is in, in a rehearsal room, um, you're always following the language, especially in a Shakespeare play. And it's like, well, yeah, me as Viola, I might not, I might be angry and I'm trying to make sense of why I'm doing this, that, or the other, or why I'm being quiet, but the play is still going on. And it's really complicated actually to wrap up a play in a satisfying way. So Mm -hmm. I didn't ever have that conversation about her at that point, because there are such larger fish to fry in that moment in the rehearsal room. I felt um, frustrated by it, but it doesn't need for me to become a central focus because I can deal with that as an actor. 
that's the that's how the play actually goes. That's the play I actually signed up for. And I can navigate that on my own and I can continue to navigate that throughout the course of the run. Viola, Isabella in Measure for Measure, Julia and Two Gentlemen of Verona, all female characters who are silent for the remainder of Act 5 once marriage has been proposed. It's also true of another of Shakespeare's pants roles, Rosalind, though that's not quite as lengthy or problematic a silence there. Plus, Rosalind gets this epilogue at the end of As You Like It, though that's really the male actor who would have played her addressing the audience and not the character herself speaking. Rosalind and Viola do have some traits and experiences in common in these two beloved comedies. Let's hear what Carla Delegata has to say about how they're different. Well, Viola lands in this strange place, and she could have the option to go to Olivia's house and present herself as a woman, but chooses this other option. When Rosalind goes into the forest, she goes into disguise. She doesn't need to go into disguise to be in the forest of Arden. Mm -hmm. She does it solely to change her class and to play. I mean, and Rosalind is, is noted as being the stage director and, and kind of directing most of the plot versus Viola is one of the main causes of this plot but isn't, doesn't seem to have as much control over it. Rosalind um, already loves Orlando and the, Orlando puts the poetry of love up on the trees in the Forest of Arden. So their whole courtship is something she's just extending that time before marriage. Mm-hmm. Viola doesn't mean to extend the time. Orsino, doesn't, Orsino is not yet in love with her. Mm-hmm. So we have very different motivations for play. And I know you've taught Twelfth Night in your classes. I think you were mm-hmm. telling me as recently as this past fall. Yes. Um, so what are some discussions uh, about the play, especially about Viola, that come up with your students? I, I think a lot with the students, they have questions about the ending. You know, endings mm-hmm. are a big deal. This is, you know, um, much is to do with the ending, right? Mm-hmm. And I think with Viola, they're like, well, is she happy? Is she happy? <laughs> the concern for her feelings at the mm-hmm. end because she's silenced after the promise of marriage. Right. And that's incredibly troubling for for modern audiences and for students to, to understand. But the question of, yes, what's Twelfth Night Part 2? Where does this go? Are, are these couples actually going to turn out well? And how do you how do you think that you're chummy with your male servant and find out she's he's a she and then say, let's get married? And it... <laughs> It seems, I think they have a, cons- a concern for the characters that that marriage comes too quickly. I'm like, well, that's how they wrapped up a comedy. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and and from simply a genre perspective, I, um, yeah. but I think there's a, a concern about, about this concept of love because you, because at this time, you know, marrying um, was about class structure, but Orsino feels that he's in love and wants to marry for love. And Viola falls in love, and but then there's this easy marriage. So where does actually love come into marriage, and 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 I think that's problematic. That's incredibly problematic for them. It's a somewhat troubling ending for many 21st century audience members and readers of the play. But Twelfth Night manages to remain relevant and feel fresh in modern stagings. I think that the desire to reinvent oneself still resonates today. And what if I could change? And what if I had that mobility that Viola isn't going to have if she had stayed in her woman's garments? And she could have gone to serve Olivia and hang out in her house at her court. And 
but what if I got to maneuver through society and be someone else? And I think that that's kind of still incredibly important in our society today. Mm-hmm. Um, to have that, yes, that type of facility and mobility, just to, to see what would happen. What advice would you give to an actress or an actor taking on the role of Viola? Well, I think you have to keep your heart open. You know, she's a very heart open young woman. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to have a ball. There's just so many fun things that you can do with the role. Yeah. And I do think you also have to consider that if she's discovered, she'll be killed, so that there's some stakes to pulling off the disguise. I think that's a common understanding that in Illyria, if she were known to be uh, pretending to be something that she was not, she would be killed. I think that I would tell them to watch and listen to other versions. I'm a big fan of that. So I think there's actually a lot to be learned from watching other violas who have come before you and listening to recordings, just so that you can hear people turn a phrase in a different way, illuminate a language, illuminate a moment. And then you can borrow from those things and there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's something really beautiful about borrowing because we're all in this big lineage of these people who are presenting these Shakespeare plays over hundreds of years. And it's really beautiful to me that we can sort of exchange ideas and moments and carry each other on stage in our performances. Yeah, I just think it's a great play and I think It wouldn't hurt to look at other versions of the play, but basically everybody makes it their own. It's the kind of play that can really fit you like a glove. You know, you just put it on and rock your own particular reason to enjoy being in disguise and eavesdropping on a life you would otherwise never see. Many thanks to the guests who joined us for the second ever episode of Shakespeare's Shadows. Carla Delegata, Lisa Volpe, and Sarah Bruner. Original music for the podcast is by Daryl Chadwick. Art for the podcast is by Chris Weller. The next episode will hit the web in two weeks. You get a new episode every other Wednesday, but keep an eye on the Twitter and Facebook accounts for Shakespeare's Shadows. I'll be releasing some additional content there to tide you over until the next episode. Things like excerpts from my Lear and Viola interviews that didn't make the final cut of the episodes. Also, I want to hear from you. I'd like to keep the conversation going about Viola. Tweet the podcast at at Shadows or find us on Facebook. Share your thoughts there on just what Twelfth Night Part 2 might look like. What you imagine happens to these couples next. Tell me and your fellow listeners about performances of Viola you've seen, or to the actors out there, tell us some of your memories and lessons learned from playing this fan favorite Shakespeare heroine. So I hope to hear from you on Twitter and Facebook, or you can shoot an email on over to contact at shakespeareshadows.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, fare thee well. <laughs>